sins around. Let us bless the Lord every day and night.
Church family, good morning. Great to be gathered once again together that we get to sing the praise of Christ. I'd love to open with Psalm 40, verse 5. It says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. This morning we get to proclaim and tell of the great deeds of God, not just his great deeds, but of who he is. Let's stand together and let's sing with all of our heart to our great Savior. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures. sing together with all of our heart this morning.
ourselves of that truth this morning. You can be seated today. Well, good morning. What a, what a great day to gather together and worship our Savior and King. Amen? Well, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here, and we are happy to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, if you are newer to Providence, please, would you take a moment and fill out uh, our welcome card? Uh, you can get a physical copy out at the welcome desk, or uh, you can whip out your phone and scan the QR code on the screen behind me. Uh, full disclosure, if uh, you fill one out, you won't be entered for a prize, and you, you won't get a gift basket. Uh, but I assure you, you'll actually get something far better. Um, you'll be taking the first step to connect with a church whose mission is to follow Christ together in everything that we do. And so please, if you haven't done so, would you take a minute to fill out uh, our welcome card? And then a couple of events come up this week that we'd like to put before you. On uh, Friday, the youth group is heading out to Cedar Point for the day. So we'll meet here at the church at 9 a.m. We will arrive back probably way later than I would like, but we'll have an awesome time together. And so if you have middle school or high school students and you think they would enjoy it, please go to our uh, church's website under our youth page and they can register there by Wednesday. Uh, if you have questions, you can track me down after the service. Uh, and then on Saturday, please consider joining us for Pray the Day, which is a time of guided prayer here at the church uh, from eight to noon. Uh, now, you, you might hear that and be intimidated and think, well, Caleb, how, how could I ever pray for four hours? Well, why don't you come on Saturday and find out? So, Saturday, pray today, four to eight, be there. Uh, and now, uh, it's my pleasure to invite Abby uh, and Emma Kuyper up. Uh, Abby and Emma are heading on a mission trip uh, early August, and so uh, Abby is going to share about what they're doing, Emma's going to share a couple of prayer requests, and then we're going to pray for them. So. Good morning. As you said, my name is Abby, and this is my sister, Emma. Uh, we are students at Cedarville University and both part of the volleyball team there. Uh, we have been blessed with the opportunity to go to Guatemala this summer from August 4th through August 11th. 
There we'll be playing six matches um, against their national team there, as well as helping run a volleyball clinic for the kids in the community, as well as helping at a crisis pregnancy center. And a couple of things that you could pray for would just be safety and that God um, would just prepare the hearts of the team uh, and those to whom we'll be ministering to. So. Awesome. Would you, uh, would you join me in uh, praying for them? Father, we thank you that you are the God of the nations. We thank you that you are not limited or localized, but the whole earth is your domain. Father, I thank you for how you have been at work in Abby and Emma's lives, how you have grown and matured them and have brought them to this point. And so we lift them up to you now. We ask that you would be with them as they go to Guatemala as ambassadors for you and your kingdom. Father, we ask that you would provide them and their teammates divine appointments, opportunities to share your love and greatness with others. Father, we ask that you would keep them safe, that you would have your hand upon them, and that they would return to us declaring with joy how they saw you move and work. And so we ask that you and you alone would receive glory from their travels and their efforts. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And now, if you're able, would you stand with me as we turn our attention to the catechism for this week? Over the last few weeks, we have been reflecting on the sacraments, specifically that of baptism, and now we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. And so today's question is, what is the Lord's Supper? Uh, would you join me with the answer? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. And then the passage from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a lot packed into that answer. And what we should notice is that the Lord's Supper is not just something that gets tacked on to a service. It's used by the Lord to minister to the believer. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. It's where we revel in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the Lord's Supper brings about reunification. That when we come to his table, it provides us the opportunity and the means for our fractured relationships with God and with others to be remembered, to be restored. Uh, it's, it's edification. 
It, it teaches us that the constant murmur in our heads that we're trash, that we're worthless, that we're unlovable is wrong. That when we take the bread, which represents his body, the cup, which represents his blood, we learn afresh of God's love and value for us. And it is our assurance that the one who gave all for us will not forsake us, that he comes again, and he comes soon. And so, with that in mind, what is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. And the passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's sing his praises. Amen. Let's sing this great hymn together with all of our heart, with thankfulness and gladness, as the Psalms say. So let's just sing for joy this morning to your family. Goodness and mercy here daily attend. 
sing to a risen Savior today. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation Turn to heaven, spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope, who could imagine so great a mercy, what heart could fathom such boundless grace, the God of ages stepped down from Says spoken, I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me His own. Beautiful Savior, I'm Yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. All our hearts sing. Christ. 
began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave had no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the promise the very body began to breathe out of the silence the That's the reason we can sing today, the reason we can celebrate today what he's done. Great to sing together. Amen? You can be seated this morning. Well, I find um, most of the time I get preoccupied thinking about who God is bringing into the church. No doubt a good thing that the church is the family of God. We want the family of God to grow. But uh, on days like these, I have to remind myself that the church is also a great place of sending. Uh, that it's a place of commissioning, it's a place where people are built up in the faith, encouraged to follow the plan that God has for their lives, and then to go out and, and obey that calling. And so today, as uh, you know, I think of uh, the announcement Ian and Renee are going to make, I, I think uh, to Acts 13, when the young and fledgling church decided to send out uh, Barnabas and Paul. And you think, why in the world would, would a church send out two of their most talented people? And uh, that's a bit of the way I feel today, that I, I uh, have sadness, the colliding emotions of, um, of sadness of sending, uh, because it means change, uh, but also with great joy, because I know that this is what we're called to do. So those things before you, I invite Ian and Renee up uh, as they'd like to speak to the family. Church, good morning. Good to be with you. I promised the first service that I would stick to the script and not be a hot mess, but that promise was unfulfilled, so. <laughs> Round two. Round two, yes. <laughs> so I'll try and stick to the script again. Bear with me. But. Renee and I couldn't have imagined um, making this announcement over a month ago. Uh, we received an unexpected call from Dr. Julie Slattery. Many of you are familiar with Julie. Uh, she came and spoke at our last Christmas 
Women's, Women's Christmas Outreach. And some of you maybe know her from her Job with Julie podcast, but she had a new position at Authentic Intimacy that she wanted to share with me. And just real quick, the backstory to this is I have been interacting with this ministry for about 10 years. I've found their content very edifying. I've utilized it much uh, in ministry around here at the church. Um, and shortly after Julie came and spoke to us at the Women's Christmas event, um, to us, I was there. I was there at the Women's Christmas event. <laughs> I heard her speak. Love, the, love that event. Um, Renee and I, uh, we, we had the opportunity shortly after to um, journey with 30 other Christian leaders for a weekend training in um, Julie's discipleship approach, which is called sexual discipleship. And this training is what I've been um, taking through our staff uh, since January. And sexual discipleship is now a ministry of authentic intimacy, and this is their goal. They desire to help pastors and church leaders disciple others with a biblical approach to sexual brokenness and to sexual integrity. Um, this is the conversation the culture's having. It's the one the church needs to have as well. And so while I would have heartily supported this ministry effort from afar, I never could have imagined being invited to lead this effort with Julie Slattery in churches across the country. So it's an exciting opportunity. But what I'm most grateful for, honestly, is that my family and I can remain very much engaged here at Providence. Um, I'm leading worship in a couple weeks. My small group decided I could stay, and, uh, <laughs> and Renee and I hope to continue mentoring and discipling. And this is our church family. You are our church family. You mean so much to us. You've made our lives so much richer in Christ. We are so happy to continue worshiping and serving here with you. And so it goes almost without saying that, you know, I've just absolutely loved being uh, working uh, here with uh, our pastor team, our elders, Vance in the care ministry, um, just phenomenal. Elaine Edkin, incredible, and many others. I've been reminiscing uh, lots and weeping periodically, which will be of no shock to anyone in this room. Um, I am so grateful to our sovereign God for allowing me to serve here as a pastor at Providence. So this decision was not easy, to say the least. Ray and I soaked this in fervent prayer and uh, we're thankful for the Lord's guidance toward this new chapter of ministry. And obviously we cover your prayers in this, but, um, but thank you. Thank you for caring and loving our family so well through the years. We showed up, I think, 20, 2002, 2003. And um, it's, uh, it's a joy to call this place home. And so thankful for each of you. So with that, I will somehow pray with you right now. We're going to pray and... Um, and read the scripture together. Father, you are majestic and holy, upright, good, unfathomably merciful, gracious, forgiving. As we sang, Lord, our hearts sing. Jesus has taken our sin and shame on himself. He has buried that, and he has risen on the third day according to the scriptures, and we do have his hope this morning. We have even more. We have his purity. We have his righteousness. We are innocent before you, Lord. It is hard to imagine, but it is true. Christ has given us the work that he has done, the life that he has lived on our behalf, belongs to us now, and he did this joyfully, willingly, and lovingly 
And so, Father, help us to continue to draw near to you and to delight in you through Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to demonstrate your faithfulness and your kindness to providence. Lord, we thank you for the souls that have been saved because of the ministries that you have erected here at the church over the years. We thank you, Lord, for their ongoing ministry and their work. Lord, we think about the crucial uh, time in which we need our children's ministry and our youth ministry, men's, women's, to proclaim the gospel, to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus and to grow in him. Lord, we need this kingdom to be built as you have promised to do. And so, Lord, we pray for every volunteer, for every teacher, leader, elder, pastor, anyone who's, who's in the trenches of the ministries here, that you would bless them and help them to hunger for your righteousness. Help them, Lord, to find their endurance and their strength from you alone and not from any type of notoriety that can come in serving or any other uh, aspect, Lord. Help our self-preservation not be a disruption for our fellowship and communion with you. Help us to not have pride. Help us to grow in Christ-like humility. He served the least of these. He became nothing. For, this, for our souls, so that we would know you. And so, Lord, help us to have the same posture in our ministries. Lord, I lift up our care ministry. I thank you so much for the efforts of Vance and others, Lord, our care teams, our volunteers, for Elaine and serving the senior care facilities so well for so many years now. Lord, be their strength, be their peace. Lord, I pray for our marriages. I pray for our marriage ministry, that you would equip this ministry to serve you gladly that marriages might be strengthened and Christ-centered and Christ-glorifying and delighting. So Lord, we pray that you would mightily use these ministries, all of them, for your great glory. Lord, we just thank you so much for this week. We thank you for this body and all the, all the wonderful things that you're doing through it. We thank you for helping Rick Garrett to go home, and we pray that you help continue his recovery. But Lord, in this body, we know that there are also many hurts and many pains, many people with sadness and surgeries and sickness and mourning. So we just pray for the wards today. We pray for the meekers, and we pray that you would be with them. And Lord, but we also pray that we would be with them, and we pray that we would help one another. We pray that we would lift up one another. We would share each other's burdens, that we would truly be the church. And Lord, we pray that we would be vulnerable to those around us, and that we would share our burden so that the church can help, that you can use the church to help heal and restore us. And we just thank you that, that our lives are supposed to be messy and intertwined with one another. So Lord, help us to be connected and to feel the, your love. Father, I lift up to you, Angela and Luchanel Demetriscuta. I thank you so much for their testimony of faith, their perseverance. Lord, be with them as they travel through this uh, trying time. And thank you for their beautiful family. Lord, we do lift them up to you. And we thank you, Father, for the preaching of your word. We thank you for the faithfulness that you've demonstrated to us by giving us your Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and draws us closer to Christ. So be with Austin as he preaches, Lord. Thank you for Luke 18. Thank you, Lord, for just the faithful proclamation of the gospel, um, the testimony of your word, 
that has gone out into all the ages uh, and into all peoples. And so, Lord, we, uh, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness. And in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church family, if you are able, go ahead and stand uh, together as we look at Luke 18. Jesus' words. Jesus' miracle. Verse 31, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Amen. Amen, church. You could be seated. You can clap for Ian and Renee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for obeying the call of God, and they're still going to be a part of the church family, and for them, and unknown part of the calculus, you know, when we moved to Avon, we moved eight doors down from the Shires, so now I'll be coming over for counseling when Pastor Denny frustrates me. <clears throat> well, there's something I do very first thing in the morning, and there's something I do the very last thing before I go to bed, and I know what you're thinking, so here's the pastor, we know what he's going to say, he's going to say, read your Bible, uh, good idea, but no, actually what I do, first thing when I wake up, I put in my contact lenses. And the last thing I do before I go to sleep, I take out my contact lenses. And uh, it's not recommended by doctors to have them in all day, every day, but as it would have it, have it at the, the providence of God, talking about sight and the blind beggar, I had my annual eye appointment this past Thursday. I've worn corrective lenses for many years since I was in middle school. And uh, what a part of that appointment, you know, you've got to take out your contact lenses and you've got to guess the letters, and, and you realize in that moment, uh, I really can't see much. Um, and it's, it's humbling, isn't it? Just like I'm being led around by uh, Patrick over there at Dr. Majorca's office, a member of our congregation. You know, you can only trust so many people with vital organs. Uh, so I'm over there, and I'm just like, you know, this is a sight is a very valuable gift. Uh, that many of us would realize you go through and you have this incredible organ in your head that allows you to perceive uh, the world, to see colors, to see all these fantastic things. And we often take it for granted, but physical sight is a great blessing. And to have better sight is the right thing and the better thing to do. Our passage today would actually draw our attention to the fact that there's a different kind of seeing. Yes, of course there's physical sight, 
But there's also spiritual sight. There's such a thing as seeing the things of God, to see life as it really is, to, to lay open before our eyes the nature of God and the nature of human beings and to really get it. And when we see, we get a gift even greater than physical sight, but entrance into the kingdom and our, the calling on our life. And so in these two, as you would have it, you say, what is there really a connection between sight? I, I hope to make that connection very clear here. But what Jesus does from verse 31 to 34 is he addresses his disciples on the, the, the real nature of his ministry. That if you remember last week when uh, Denver preached so well, we left it with Jesus saying these words to his followers. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but you, you, know, you sometimes have a, a, you know, a coach or a leader and, and they're giving you hard instructions and they're telling you the way you have to do things and you have this moment, you think, you know, is he or she ever had to do this? You know, are they really down in there with me or are they just telling me these hard things to do? Here we see that Jesus modeled the call that he sounds out to every potential disciple. And this is right in line with what Luke has been telling us, right? That our inclinations that are born into, the, we're born with these inclinations to exalt ourselves and to self-justify. I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. I've got this, and God's on the side when I need his help. But that's our natural disposition, and we build resumes, what Luke's been showing us, actually, with great repetition, is the person who exalts him or herself is actually the one who's going to be humbled. And the person who humbles him or herself for the sake of God is actually the one who's exalted. That the kingdom of God, that is being a follower of Jesus, works in a countercultural, counterintuitive way. And far from just being Jesus, hey, my followers need to sacrifice, that he's demonstrated this, in the very pattern of his life. Because what's he say? Don't you guys know the Son of Man, you see in verse 31, a technical phrase from the book of Daniel, the exalted coming king who's going to consummate all things in the cosmos to reconcile all things to himself, foreordained and spoken of by the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. It's going to be accomplished. Then verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. What a ministry. Now, you think you're following Jesus, and you've seen him do incredible things, that he's restored lepers, and he's uh, healed bodily ailments with a word, that he's done things that every onlooker would say, that uh, a mere mortal cannot do those things. This man must, must be God. Uh, clearly, we're, we're following a godlike figure. And Jesus tells them, well, well actually, fellas, I'm going to be humiliated. Now, just to make sure that this point's driven home, you can see that Jesus does this with some regularity. So these are, this is in the notes, but back to chapter 9. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, there's that technical term, right, that the, the, the long-awaited king who's going to liberate us, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected 
by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, that Jesus would come to, be suffer, to suffer, to be humiliated, to be embarrassed, to be rejected by polite society, that he would die, really die, and God would vindicate this by raising him from the dead. How about later in the chapter? But thou, while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, you know, you say, you know, you got them, but you're locking eyes with these disciples. Guys, I really need you to understand this. You've really got to get this. The Son of Man, same title, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So three times Jesus tells the disciples the real nature of his ministry. Three times we're told, actually in our own passage it's redundant, but they did not understand any of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what it was said. Three times Luke kind of devils down on the fact that the disciples can't see it. It seems so plain. I mean, I mean, could there be more plain language than this? You know, Jesus saying, let this sink into your ears. I'm going to suffer, be spat upon. They're going to whip me. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. It's pr pretty plain. And yet they don't see it. They can't see it. Why do you think the disciples can't see the suffering Messiah. I think part of it, surely part of it, to the degree that they had a good Jewish education, part of it that they had been so indoctrinated to think that this coming king would be a great victor. And still to this day, if you ever watch a Christian and, and a Jewish scholar kind of debate, this is exactly where the debate hinges today. The Jewish guy will say, well, we're waiting for our king who's going to lead us back against all the people who don't like us, and it's going to be immediate and, and temporal liberation. A political figure is the one they're anticipating. So no doubt that they had been trained to, to see a kind of leader who was going to rise up, who was going to fight, who was going to free them of the Romans at this time and set them on their way. And they just couldn't see that. But also, and I think this one really, even more than how they'd been taught, is the fact of what they had done at this point. That they've left their jobs, that they've left their families, they've been roaming around Israel following a poor rabbi, could it be that we've really followed someone who's going to be so embarrassed? Have I really given up all this to follow somebody who's going to lose? You know, it'd be as if you're, you know, kind of on the corporate rise and you're, you know, going up in a great company and you got all the benefits. And here you say, well, there's this little startup and they, you know, have kind of showed me a, a shell of what they're doing and it looked really good and I wanted to, and you go over there and you, you realize there, there's nothing here. I, I've, I've given it all up for nothing. And I think a combination of these factors, the disciples, no doubt also the timing, God preventing their sight, partly to inform us even today as we'd study this, but they just can't see a suffering Jesus. Now, friends, we too, though, what about us? You ever recognize how many in America today are slow to come to a suffering Jesus? 
how many nominal Christians there are, say, Jesus, fantastic guy. Look at what he did. He was a great pioneer in kind of, you know, class relations. He's a proto-Marxist. I mean, way ahead of it, kind, ever, you know, whatever it might be. And one thing they refused to see is what Jesus did on the cross. You know, our passage today about Jesus being delivered over to the nations to be mocked and shamed, spat upon, is what the theologians call the passive obedience of Christ. If you're familiar with those terms, they're actually quite useful. So we'll talk about the active obedience of Jesus, which is how he perfectly obeyed his loving Father. You say, did anybody really live the perfect life? I mean, how he treated people and obeying? The yes, the Lord Jesus was actively obedient to the perfect law of God. Never broke a rule. Sinless. But Jesus was also passively obedient. What that means is that Jesus willfully submitted to the inclinations and activities of sinful men. He knew that the people who'd flog him and hand him over, yes, were acting in rebellion to God, and Jesus willfully submits. He's passively obedient to sinful men who want nothing to do with God's plan. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a very hard thing to get on board with. The one I'm following has voluntarily laid down his rights. He has not been self-interested to the point that he has submitted even to the will of sinful men. That in other words, Jesus submits. And when the modern American mind sees this idea of submitting to the will of God and coming under whatever God's plan might be, we revolt against it. Because let's face it, there's nothing more countercultural today than something like that. Well, here's what, what does the world tell me? Well, Austin, go out, do what makes you feel good. Doesn't matter. You can even alter your body if it makes you feel good. Do whatever you want to make yourself feel good. The Word of God comes, actually submit to the will of God. Come underneath it. Follow God. Listen to His voice. And for that reason, friends, I think we're reluctant to see Jesus for who he is. If I could put it very succinctly, what, what is it here you think, as Jesus would say, for I'll be delivered over to be mocked and shamefully treated, spat upon, flogged, and killed. What precisely is it that the disciples cannot see? If I could put it in these words, they can't see the cross. They can't see the cross. And many nominal Christians today cannot see the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus, nice guy, good guy, don't want to speak ill of him, but they can't see the cross. And why can't we see the cross? Because the cross is the ultimate declaration, friends, that I am not self-sufficient. Exactly what Luke 18 has been on about, right? Look at what I, God, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, you know, live in Avon. I, I don't swear. My family's nice. I, I, I don't abuse my family. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good guy at work. I, if you want to help me, God, that's great. It's not the gospel. That this smacks right in the face. The death of the Son of God comes right into the, friends, uh, right into the face of my self-justification. Because what it declares is that God needed to send His Son to take care of my sin problem. That my sin's far more serious than I could comprehend. And God did something about it by sending his son, his perfectly obedient son, to the cross on my behalf. In other words, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross is really the whole point. That, that's the thrust of our faith. There's a reason. There's a cross behind me. It reminds us of Jesus, the suffering one, in my place. So, friends, can we see the cross? 
Can we see the true nature of Jesus' ministry as one who gives and one who sacrifices, one who paid a great cost for our salvation? Not one where we beat our chests and say what, what great things we have done, but what he has done for us. Now you'll say, well, if the disciples couldn't see it, what chance do I have? I mean, they were right there with Jesus. They witnessed this firsthand, and they didn't see it. Uh, what about me? You say, well, you can see the great uh, difference, and that is that we've seen these things become true. That everything Jesus predicted is exactly what happened. And God raised Jesus bodily. You hear every Sunday, and you say, well, you know, does Shaw just get up there and talk? I mean, it's just words. You know, he's some kind of sophist, and he just makes this stuff, pulls it out of the ether, say, no, actually God raised Jesus from the dead to say everything I've said is true. And we can look back, right? The disciples didn't know, but now we look back and say it's all true. And you'll notice, as we'll spend a few more weeks in Luke here, but in the springtime, we're going to get to Luke 24, and at Luke 24, the disciples' eyes are open. Why? Because Jesus has been raised. In other words, we're, we're post-Easter. And post-Easter, we say, there it is. God did what he said he was going to do. Can you open our eyes? And friends, there's a reason why Christians, you know, the most famous, certainly the most famous Christian song, but you could argue the most famous song ever, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I came into the world thinking I'm a good guy. I'm self-determining. It's about my rights. The culture feeds on that impulse in my life. No thanks, God. You're kind of on the side. Until the day when God opens our eyes. I'm not a great guy. I've done a lot of damage, actually. In my thought life, oh boy. God's economy is perfect. What chance do I have? Oh, God put forth an obedient Savior who died on the cross for me. And you see it for the first time and surrender to Jesus. May we see the cross. May we be a church that sees the cross, sees the nature of Jesus' ministry, and doesn't get off track. So Jesus is modeling of the call he is, extends to us to go to him by means of the cross. Now, second point today, a great point of irony, which is why the Bible is always fantastic. Who gives us an example of perfect spiritual sight? A blind beggar. So Jesus comes to Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. There's a large crowd this time, many, many people. And there's a blind guy kind of hanging out in the back, verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The blind beggar sees where the help comes from. It comes from Jesus. So look at the similarities, if we can position this blind beggar and learn from him. As you read those words that he cries out, have mercy on me, and you've been coming to church for a few weeks, you're thinking... That sounds very familiar. May I just quickly draw your attention back to verse 13 of the same chapter, and this is where Jesus is telling the parable between uh, the Pharisee, the man who, you know, uh, was quite self-righteous, 
and the publican, the tax collector who swindled a lot of people. Remember what the tax collector says, or the, what the, the, the Pharisee says. He says, look at all the great stuff that I bring to the table, God. You know, I'm a great faster and I'm a great tither. And he puts God in his debt. Alternatively, the tax collector, who's no doubt ruined a lot of people and done great damage, he comes to God and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in a surprise twist, Jesus says... Actually, it's the tax collector who confesses and casts himself on the mercy of God who's right with him, not the self-righteous and accomplished among us. So the blind beggar really lives out the parable of the publican and the Pharisee by casting himself on the mercy of God, not relying on his own merit. He says, God, I'm in big trouble, and I need your help. Now, you can also see something about this blind beggar that reminds us of verses 15 to 17 about childlike faith. Doesn't the blind beggar? What do you think? Does he exemplify a childlike faith? Can you picture it there? I can. Say vast throngs of people who've come to see the great miracle worker, and, you know, you got a blind guy who's heard rumors of Jesus that there's a man who does extraordinary things for your life. You've never seen a man like this. He's so kind and yet so powerful all at once, and he just, you know, it moves towards people, and there's, there's nobody been like this guy, and he's about to pass through. And the throngs of people come, and no doubt the blind guy's kind of pushed to the back. I can't imagine how you'd navigate through a vast crowd in the ancient world, but there he is, and he hears Jesus out there, and all he can get out, right? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Look at what the crowds do, right? They rebuke him. Quiet down, you old man. He doesn't have time for you. You great sinner, that's why you're blind. Can't you see that God has cursed you? You can't call out to a great man like this. Get, get back in the back. Others probably scoffing and laughing. Look at that blind guy. You think he's got a shot with the great teacher? Verse 39. What does he do, the blind man? cries out all the more. <laughs> now, the Greek grammarians here, you checked this this week. I tried to do as best I could, but the, the word for cry in verse 38 is actually a different verb from the verb for cry, both translated cry in the English, but the verb for cry in verse 39 is uh, crying out with even more desperation. Now, how many of us know our need before Jesus like that? could see how easily I'd be embarrassed by the detractors, you know. Hey, Jesus, I need your help. Oh, not, not that guy. I mean, come on. We, we moderns, I mean, with all these technologies available to us, with all the great psychiatric help, with all the, the things available, you're going to call on the name of Jesus? Get in the back. But the, the detractors do not discourage the blind man. And he comes to Jesus, and he cries out in need. And you see, friends, this is why the blind man sees. The blind man sees his real need, and he doesn't let his pride or the detractors or any laughing or any mocking or any rebuking get in between him and his Savior. And so you see immediately the lessons we learn from this blind man, right, that we need to understand our spiritual need. There's no doubt that a physically blind man, he knows his need. I'm blind and I need sight. Would it be so for everyone who sits under Luke 18 this morning to say, you know what, I'm spiritually blind. I was born here, but God granted me sight. Or God, will you grant me sight? And friends, if I don't say it often enough, 
if you read this book and you come to a church like this and you believe that Jesus is your hope in life and death, there will be many people who laugh at you and mock you, and you won't be in a majority. You're going to be in a small little minority. You know, say, you know, let's get our guys in Washington anymore. That's long gone. But I pray that we're a little bit like this blind man, say, it doesn't matter. I see my need, and I need Jesus. May we see it. Verse 41, also another lesson from Bartimaeus. I think it's an extraordinary line that Bartimaeus, who I'll get to in a moment, the blind man comes. The blind man comes to Jesus by faith. And verse 41, what does Jesus ask him? What do you want me to do for you? What a saying. I mean, I, mean, I read this and I say, is Jesus giving him a blank check? Uh, the blind man comes by faith and Jesus says, what, what will it be? And because he comes by faith, we can see how eager Jesus is to answer our prayers. That when we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and don't rely on our self-righteousness, that God through Jesus is keen to hear our cries and to answer our call. So friends, the blind beggar sees Jesus accurately. What an irony. And he gets the whole kingdom thrown in. Now what's the response then? Uh, so we've looked at the real nature of Jesus' ministry that we might see the cross. We saw how what God wants, seeing spiritually who God is and who we are, is accurately depicted by, by a blind beggar whose faith makes him whole. Now, what about the response? Now, before getting too accurate, I, I let it slip a moment ago. You say, if you read this story, some of you know well. You say, I know this story somewhere else in the Gospels. It's in Mark chapter 10. And for those of you who know, say, well, in Mark chapter 10, this blind man has a name. His name is Bartimaeus. And Mark goes a step further. He says, now this Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. So again, all the obscure New Testament scholars, you know, people not obscure, but, you know, certainly a kind of niche, uh, like a Richard Baucom and Jesus and the eyewitnesses, he said the only way Mark would have name-dropped is if this individual was actually known to the first community of Christians. Think about it. If I name-drop somebody in front of all of you, what's necessary is that you actually know who that individual is. In other words, the fact that we know that this man is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, shows us that he really did become a part of, of the early church family. And what does he do? As anyone must do when we receive real spiritual sight, we see what God has done for us in Jesus. He immediately recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Friends, the accurate response, when we see clearly spiritually, we see our need, we see the greatness of the Savior, that our only response is to follow him as disciples, which is why here our mission is to follow Christ together, to be true disciples, to grow in our faith, to be more like Jesus, to encourage each other on that path, to follow him together, and in so doing, to glorify God. We could describe that as showing the weightiness and the greatness of God to our non-believing neighbors in our community. And when even one comes to true sight and true faith, it results in great corporate praise. All the people praised at this amazing story of the blind man seeing who all along saw spiritually. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you know, you might be saying, well, I, I have perfect eyesight. That's a, that's a great gift. But maybe you're saying, you know, I just don't have any direction in my life. 
I'm not seeing the world at all clearly. I feel like I'm tossed around on the waves. You might even go so far as to say, to use the visual metaphor, it's as if the whole world's a bit cloudy and I can't find my footing. Is there someone who could help me to see? I hope you read today in Luke 18 to say, yes, there is one who helps us see accurately. And when we surrender to him that he gives us, he grants us full spiritual sight. So even in the hardships of this life, when we walk in him by faith, that we have a great confidence because he's in control. And I pray today, you, you just, you know, today, the blind beggar woke up this day just like any other day, and he came and he heard Jesus was coming, and he encountered Jesus. Maybe you're here just like any other Sunday, you're drugged to church, and, but today's your day. Because you read this and you say, I can come to Jesus. I can come to God on his terms, seeing my needs, seeing the suffering Savior, seeing what he did on the cross for me, and I yield to that and say, Jesus, I need you. And as you surrender more and more to him, you see things clearly and can walk in confidence and hope. Now, church family, close with an illustration. There have been many, many blind Christians, physically blind Christians over the centuries. You know, Paul himself, I think there's a good argument to be had, had eye trouble. You know, he's writing the Galatians. He's like, I wish you, you know, give me, you would have given your eyes for me. And then he says, look at how big I write. Maybe Paul had eye trouble. John Milton certainly had eye trouble. But I close with an illustration from Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer. She was blind at a very young age, uh, best known for blessed assurance. Uh, but at the end of her life, she, she you know, was routinely asked, don't you wish God, you know, why would God make you blind? I mean, you've been such a faithful servant. I mean, why, why would you, you know, maybe if you, you were to ask him again, you know, would you ask him to give you physical sight all your life? And as an old lady, she said, you know what? I would not ask God to give me the gift of physical sight in my life. And she said, that's because when I go to heaven, the first thing my eyes will see is my great Savior. She understood spiritual sight. Friends, physical sight's a great gift. May we see the cross. May we see casting ourselves on the mercy of God. May we see the seriousness of our condition, the greatness of the Savior, and may we see clearly the call to follow him and praise him that others might do so as well. Amen. Jim, if you'd come up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Bartimaeus. Last hour, I saw a widower, became a widower this week. 53 years of marriage. His wife, I do believe, is not only seeing Jesus, but up there with Bartimaeus and many others of the heavenly host. So, Lord, in this world that would give us all kinds of messages that seem to be taking a real foothold and leading us into not-so-good and dark places, help us to see the wonderful gift of light and sight, that there is a good God who sent forth Jesus into history to die in our place, that you understand our suffering and our hardship here because in Jesus you're the chief sufferer, and that as we would see our need and entrust Jesus, or we would say receive Jesus, that then we see things clearly and that we can be put on our way. So help us to do what Bartimaeus did, to follow you with great alacrity, with great cheerfulness, that we would glorify you, showing the weightiness of you, that you're really the, the thing that directs and orients every aspect of life, and that we would respond in corporate praise and that others would join your family. So may Jesus be lifted high. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing to our holy God this final song together.